Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. Today, I'm talking to Sarah Moss about her book, Ghost Wall, which is out now in paperback from Picador. As usual, you can find a complete transcript and a list of all the books mentioned today linked in our show notes. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Welcome to 2020, friends. Welcome to a new season of Reading Women. We have so many wonderful things planned. I spent the break talking to everyone and talking about new books and planning our reading, which is always very exciting. <laughs> so we are well on our way. Uh, but to start us off, I'm going to be talking to Sarah Moss. Uh, when this was pitched to me by the publisher, I was like, of course, I'm, I want to talk to Sarah Moss. Uh, she is very popular over in the UK. We only have about two books of hers out here in the US. One is by Europa. This one is now out from FSG and Hardback and Paperback. It's out from Picador. And I'm so thrilled that Sarah Moss is finally coming to the United States. There's now an audiobook of Ghost Wall. As you know, I love audiobooks. So the, all of this is very exciting. And so today on the podcast, Sarah and I talk about her novel, what the inspiration was for that. We talk a lot about Northern England and what stereotypes might be found there. But uh, most of this book deals with the intersection of class and gender and what that looks like in a very interesting way as she tells the story. This book is a novella. And so it isn't very long, and so it was very difficult to be able to talk about the book and not give away spoilers since it is so short. So forgive my vague questions, uh, but I wanted to make sure that this was a spoiler-free conversation. Uh, so without further ado, here is my interview with Sarah Moss. Uh, welcome, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. I am so thrilled to talk to you today. Thank you. Uh, Ghost Wall is, did it come out last year in the U.S.? Uh, in the U.S., yes, it did. So what number of novel is this for you? Because I know you've written a lot more that just haven't come out here. That's right. It's number six. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I first heard about your writing from a lot of UK booktubers mm. and I went to try to find your books and they weren't available here so I was so thrilled when Ghost Wall uh, was going to be published here in the United States. Yeah it's really exciting to have it in America and with FSG. Oh, has there been an, a different kind of reception that your work has received in the US compared to how your work is received in the UK? Maybe a little. I think in the UK it's been read as a bit more of a Brexit book and it was quite nice to see other things being picked up in the US because, I mean, you know, maybe it is a Brexit book, but that's not all that it's doing. And I think even to the extent that it might be about Brexit, it's really about nationalism and ideas of racial supremacy and kind of background Brexit ideology that applies much more widely. There's so many things I want to ask you. Hmm. But before I get ahead of myself, uh, Ghost Wall is about a young woman named Sylvie. Uh, mm. So who is Sylvie? And what were some of the key things that you knew heading into beginning to write this story? Hmm. Sylvie is 17. And that age really interests me because it's just on the cusp between childhood and adulthood. 
And she's kind of poised to look out from her family world into imagining her own future. But her sense of what she might do is limited by social class and by region. She lives in quite a poor part of northern England in a town that people tend not to leave very much. And her background is working class. It's by no means taken for granted that she's going to go on to any kind of higher education. So she's really poised at a moment of uncertainty and fragility. And that's a really interesting narrative position. Yeah, I immediately was drawn to this story. And we talked about it on the podcast for a theme we did on working class stories. Mm. And my co-founder and one of another one of our co-hosts were all from working class backgrounds. So it was really important for us to see this kind of story. This is, I mean, this is set in the UK, so it's a little different from our experience here in the US. Yes. What drew you to this story? Uh, why the story? Why now? And uh, is it something that's been ruminating in your mind for a while? That's a set of big questions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, probably it has been forming in my mind for a while. I started with a place, actually. I always start with place rather than character or plot. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so it began in a writing residency in Northumberland, which is right at the northern edge of England, up on the Scottish border by Hadrian's Wall. And... I fairly often get invited to take residencies and I never can because they always say, oh, you know, come and stay in our beautiful castle for three weeks or six weeks and we'll cook for you and we'll organise everything for you and there'll be no Wi-Fi and you can just read. And I think, well, yes, that would be very nice, but I have a full-time job and two children and whose life is it that works so that you can just disappear (laughs) for three weeks or six weeks? I mean, those are clearly meant for people who have no caring responsibilities and no paid employment and really no, you know, nobody relying on them for anything as far as I can see. And this time it was New Writing North. They're a a literary organisation in the north of England. And they said, oh, yeah, you're right, actually. It's really exclusive to do it that way. What if we break it into sections of two or three or four days and through the winter you can take a series of these short residencies? And that was so lovely for me because I can't take three weeks out of my family life or my working life, but I can take two or three days here and there. And it meant that I'd go and be there quite intensively for a short period but then it would fuel me and sustain my thinking through a few more weeks and particularly in winter here you know it's dark and it's cold and I'm a university lecturer so it's always working all the time from September to June and it was so lovely to have those periods of a few days and it gave me space to think about place and to move over land and to talk to people in a way that I can't normally do when writing's running along with everything else in my life. You know, I never thought about how residencies are more catered to people who don't have families or full-time jobs. And most Mm -hmm. writers have full-time jobs. Yeah, many have families. Yeah. And I I particularly find it fascinating that you start with place. And for me, place is incredibly important when it comes to a a book. Uh, And you mentioned that this novel is set in the north of England in in a poor area of northern England. Mm. I was talking to our co-host Jacqueline, whose family is from northern England, um, until they moved to Australia. And so when she read this, she said that there hadn't been a novel that really captured that area where she's from 
as clearly as this book. And we were discussing it. And she and I both live in the American South. And in a lot of ways, I feel like a lot of the stereotypes that people have about the American South are very similar about um, Northern England. Mm, That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it, but I'm sure you're right. Yeah, I, I feel like since I'm not from England... It's trying to like, mm. okay, what are the stereotypes? Like, what are people's perceptions of Northern England? And then going into the book kind of like that way. Yes, it's been really interesting thinking about that as it's been translated into other languages, because thinking about how to translate the dialect means you have to think about which regions of each country are the equivalent of the North. But of course, in America, it doesn't explicitly have a translation, so we didn't exactly have to do that. But when it's going into French or German, the translator really has to work out which accents to use. That is fascinating. I'm sure I could fall down the rabbit trail of linguistics forever talking about (laughs) this. But now that we've kind of situated our listeners like an equivalent, as it were, obviously not a direct translation. Mm. What were some of the stereotypes that you wanted to look at with this book since you started with place? Was there something in particular that you wanted to write about the North in that way? I grew up in the North and when I moved to the South to go to university was the first time I really saw the North because, of course, if you grow up in it, it's it's normal. And we never went to the South of England, never saw any reason to go to the South of England. So... I've spent my adult life being called a northerner, but I didn't know I was a northerner until I left the north. And I wanted to write a book that had that perspective that was centred in the north and wasn't always comparing the north to the south or making some great issue of northern identity that simply took for granted that there are there are narrative positions of northerness. There aren't very many books, there aren't very many novels, recent novels, Set in the North maybe isn't quite fair, but with Northern narrators, I mean, there are, there are a few and they're they're very good. But something I've been asked a few times in England is, now, it's really interesting that you don't set your novels in London. Can you talk to us about why you don't set your novels in London? And I think, why would I set my novels in London? I've never lived in London. I, you know, I mean, I go there from time to time to enact business the way anybody might. But it's not where I live. It's not where I've ever lived. Why can't there be stories from other places? We have the same feelings about novels set in New York City. Yes. And I'm just like, okay, guys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I'm from Appalachia, which I guess if there was an equivalent, it would Yes, be, it would be. It yeah, would, I've read stuff about yeah, it. Yeah. I've also seen like comparisons to Wales as well, because there's it's very yeah. mountain, like, you know, hilly, mountainous, whatever, and there's lots of coal and, and different things. And I felt very similar when I left Appalachia. I didn't realize I lived in Appalachia. I'd never thought of myself yeah. as Appalachian, but you leave and everyone is like, where'd you come from? Do you marry your cousin? Uh, <laughs> do you know what a computer is? <laughs> yes, yes. When I got to university, it was just assumed that having got there was some spectacular achievement. And yeah, we probably didn't have indoor plumbing. <laughs> and I went to a reasonably posh private girls school and did latin and went to the theater and generally had most of the accoutrements of a a middle class life but that just didn't gel for people they couldn't imagine that that kind of life existed in the north did you find yourself trying to even out your accent because i know england has way more distinct accents than the u.s does Mm -hmm. but there's still always that pressure to like try to be the most normal sounding 
Yes, absolutely. I've lost it. I used to sound northern and my husband, who's a posh southerner, says he can still hear northern vowels and it comes back a bit when I go north. Uh, my husband and my kids tease me that there's a point driving up the M1, which is the big motorway heading north, where my accent shifts, even if we don't get out of the car. Um, but yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, now I've lost it. I just sound generically educated, a bit posher <laughs> than I am. Oh, so one of the things I think that really drive the, this book is Sylvie and her experience. Uh, and the setup for our listeners is that she is on this like archaeological dig that her dad is like helping this professor in his class like move through and he's kind of like a local guide and so he brought his Sylvie and her mother along and there is that obvious class difference immediately as soon as you see it on the page and there's a lot of assumptions that they have about Sylvie's dad but he's actually very learned and you can see like their stereotypes there. Yes, he's an autodidact. I mean, he's a bus driver. And in England, in some parts, there still is this exam called the 11 plus. And you take the exam when you're 10. And if you do well, you go to one sort of school. And if you do badly, you go to another sort of school. And that means that people are divided into, well, it used to be professional and manual work at the age of 10. Wow. And that was normal. I mean, in some ways, it was it led to a lot of social mobility because if you went to a grammar school, you could go to university and there was no money involved at any stage. The grammar schools were free and the universities were free. So for working class kids who passed that exam, it was the key to post-war social mobility. But for those who failed, of course, it was the key to post-war social stagnation. And Sylvie's dad is one of the ones who failed it. And in the area to the north of where I grew up, it's mostly mining country. It's parts of the country where traditionally men did hard manual labour. And when the book is set in the 90s, that manual labour has gone. The coal mines have closed. The factories have closed. So for men whose masculinity was defined by work and physical strength, over a very short period of time, there's nothing to do and no way to prove yourself and no way to be a man. And he's very badly caught by that. He's put on the scrap heap as a child, offered another form of masculinity, a way to to matter. And then that's taken away from him as well. And he ends up devoting himself to studying Iron Age and Roman Britain and imagining that period as a time when he would have been all right, when his masculinity would have been valid and the skills he has, which are all to do with surviving on the land and moving on the hills and understanding the natural world would have been enormously important. And then he comes up against the professor who is middle class and has a lot of degrees and finds his own power and expertise and formally recognised kinds of knowledge. And they're both invested in certain kinds of masculine power but they're on a collision course and that dynamic and the tension that you build and i don't think we've mentioned yet but you know ghost wall is mm. not even 200 pages long so you do that in such a short amount of space i think the u.s edition is just yes. over 130 pages but the way that her dad comes onto the scene and it's almost like as soon as you read about him it's like he's just you know, jumps off the page and there's that tension there. And I feel like I have met him 
yeah. uh, so many times. And the fact that you see this person that is very different from you, but yet so familiar was just such a, mm-hmm. I don't know, it kind of struck me in the face a little bit. And that was a very powerful character. Yeah, I think we've all met him, um, men carrying anger. For our climate, the way it is, both in America and in the UK, he's definitely someone that we've seen. Even if we don't have met him, maybe we live in a more urban area or whatever it might be. But yeah, uh, I mean, he is everywhere. But I do feel like he's become more prominent in recent years, at least. Yeah. Yes. But I wanted him not to be a monster. That was really important to me. Because when we decide that the angry men are just monstrous, we let off the hook, the structures that have put them in that position. I definitely see that on the page. And even if we don't agree with him, I feel like there's definitely an understanding um, of why he feels that way. Even if you're like, well, you know, dude, this is not excusable. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, the way the way he behaves is monstrous. But he's been created in a context that leaves him makes him feel that there's nothing else to do and nowhere else to go and that behavior has also been permitted and tolerated by his own community i mean these people don't come out of nowhere and they're not sustained by nothing one of the strengths of of the novel is that intersection of class and gender and how you see so many different types of that intersection because you have, you know, both men and women who are middle class who are being educated, intersecting with Sylvie and her family. There's just something about that. It's almost as if like sexism transcends class in some ways. Yes. Yes. Well, it does. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll be back with more of Reading Women after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode is Sidetrack. Sidetrack is an ultra-portable USB monitor that attaches to the back of your laptop for a more productive workday, whether you're at home, the office, the coffee shop, or wherever. Uh, Anyone who works with two screens knows how tedious multitasking and referencing documents can be on your laptop. I know I always struggle to try to figure out split screens and it never seems to quite work right. But with Sidetrack, I can attach it to the back of my monitor. I can watch something in one screen and work in my spreadsheet or another or pull up a different website. I love working with two screens. It's really a game changer and has made me so much more productive, especially with all of these end of the year reading stats, let me tell you. What's also cool about Sidetrack is it can also mirror your screen and can rotate 100 degrees for convenient collaboration, presentations, demos, and more, which is really fabulous if you're presenting to a group of people, especially if you're having meetings on the go. I think it's so incredibly useful. Sidetrack is offering our listeners a special offer with the unique promo code so you can get 10% off visit sidetrack.com slash discount slash reading women that's sidetrack s-i-d-e-t-r-a-k.com slash discount slash reading women for 10% off you of course can find all of that information in the show notes of this episode and thanks to sidetrack for sponsoring this episode of reading women So when, with the story, we see Sylvie 
and her family. And she comes into contact with these students and she sees a different way of life, a new possibility for herself. And it makes her see herself and her family in a new light. Uh, is this, it's almost like her coming of age realization. Yes, but she doesn't know what to do with it. And she's scared and slightly hostile to it because she can sense that to agree with them or to join them would be to betray the way she's grown up and to betray her parents. And she wants to do that, but she's also quite defensive. It makes me think about how we were just talking about it with accents, like to rise up in class means that almost like you have to leave where you came from behind. Well, I think generally it's hard to have spaces for people who are being both of anything, particularly where those identities are so fiercely opposed. I just keep thinking about her at Sylvie at the camp and you see her interacting with other women and you can see that they also face sexism because they're women and are not taken seriously oftentimes in this class. But at the same time, you know, they bring with them a lot of stereotypes about her father and there's some complexities about her relationship. How did you work out those very well-drawn dynamics? Was there a process of figuring out how you wanted to tell Sylvie's story or is it something that just unraveled as you were writing it? I think that just unraveled. There were some parts of writing that I plan very minutely and other parts where I just trusted the process. And I think at the level of character and interaction, I trust the process. I almost feel as though if I think too much about those, they might not work. You know, if I look too closely at how I do it, it might stop happening. It's like something magical happening. You're afraid if you look too closely, it'll not be real anymore. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's another part of this that we haven't touched on much yet, but uh, which is Ghost Wall, the title of the book. And mm. this class is studying like ancient Britain, like we've mentioned. So what is a ghost wall and what about it drew you to including it so heavily or very prominently in your story? Mm, sure. I'm assuming that it's useful here to give the backstory about the Iron Age and the Roman invasion of Britain. Probably, yes. <laughs> I probably wouldn't need to for a British audience, but I can't imagine why anyone would know. Okay. The Romans invaded Britain it's decades after the birth of Christ. So before that, it was Iron Age tribes living around Britain and the the archipelago generally. And the Romans came AD 54, sometime around there. And naturally enough, they landed on the south coast because that's where they were coming from and then spread north, mostly conquering or subduing the various groups and tribes as they came And they got surprisingly far north. But when they got to where Hadrian's Wall is now, they encountered difficulties, which are as much to do with landscape as people. I mean, there's a narrative that they pushed the ancient Britons up to the north and finally they turned and fought. And if you want a Scottish nationalist version, it was the Scots who turned and fought, although they certainly weren't Scottish then. (laughs) Anyway, in the end, they stopped there and Emperor Hadrian said, let's just build a wall there and we won't go any further. And that wall is still there. You can walk along it. It's sometimes been described as the border between England and Scotland, but it never was that because neither England nor Scotland existed when it was built. It was the border between the Roman Empire and the barbarians, or as we might see it now, the border at the edge of Europe, if we assume that the Roman Empire was approximately Europe. 
So it's a border wall between us and them, between insiders and outsiders, between us and the barbarians. And as the Roman soldiers came northwards, different groups tried to defend themselves in different ways. The story of the ghost wall has very little archaeological evidence. There's a letter in Tacitus's account of the Roman conquest of Britain where he said, you know, his brothers, uncles, friends, son-in-law told him this is one legion was approaching a British settlement having used all their firepower and all their weapons, they built palings and got the heads of the ancestors and put them along the top in a last-ditch attempt to stop the Roman army overwhelming their settlement. And, of course, it didn't work. You can't hold off an invading army with magic. But that's the origin of the ghost walls. So I was thinking about walls and borders and the way really all the walls are ghost walls. I mean, a wall is not usually a very sound form of technology for keeping people out they will tend to come over or under or around but it's a symbolic marker and I was thinking of course about Trump's wall as I was writing that and about the fences and borders going up around Europe as the refugees tried desperately to leave Syria and also about the border between England and Scotland which was becoming more controversial in the wake of the Brexit vote because Scotland voted to stay in Europe and England voted to leave. And you mentioned that it's a great symbol and I feel like it is definitely this multi-layered uh, wall because that's what the class is studying in ancient Britain. And mm-hmm. I don't want to give any spoilers, mm-hmm. but there is like a ritual kind of thing associated with that wall. Yes, it's not really associated with the wall. There were bog bodies found across northern Europe, mostly Denmark, Germany, England and Ireland. And it seems that in the Iron Age, so just before the Romans came, some groups made a practice of sacrificing members of their communities to the bog. So these people were killed usually in at least three ways. They'd be garroted and bashed on the head and also stabbed. And the bodies were then pushed into bogs and bogs conserve bodies. They tan them, um, the tannin in the water means that the surfaces don't decay the bones dissolve but the skin and the organs survive for it turns out 2000 years and these bodies have been being found in bogs for hundreds and hundreds of years and probably since they were put in thousands of years ago they're very very strange you can see them in museums across northern europe because they look so individual they still have eyelashes and fingerprints and sort of they still have expressions and they still have hairstyles But they're so old and so strange and died in such extraordinary pain. They're very, very disturbing things to see because they seem both completely individual still and inexpressibly foreign to us. So the book begins with an imagined scene of a bog sacrifice. And I just wanted that to to haunt the reader. I want you not not to know quite, to to suspect that it's going to come back, but not not to know how. When I was rereading the story for this interview, I I opened it up and that's, you know, the first few pages. And I was just like Mm. riveted all over again. And it really makes you think about this idea of sacrificing others for the sake of the whole and how that plays out in Sylvie's life. Yes. I wanted my working title for the book was Pharmacos, which means scapegoat. 
I was thinking a lot about the the victim and the scapegoat and the bearer of sin all the time I was writing. Oh, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And when you combine all of these elements together, you have Sylvie's father Mm -hmm. who wants to hearken back to this ancient time, but then you always have these reminders throughout the story of what that ancient time actually was like. Yes, um, Sylvie, the friend Sylvie makes, Molly, one of the students, is very clear that it really wouldn't have been much fun and that it's much nicer to have ice cream and hot showers and shampoo and comfortable boots <laughs> um, and that life was nasty, brutish and short in the Iron Age. It's like people asking you, like, where do you want to travel back in time? Uh, yes. Nowhere. <laughs> I'll stick with equal rights, antibiotics and dishwashers. Thank you. Yeah. I I can't imagine. And that's one of the things that was fascinating to me about reading this was the idea of these students trying to live like they were in the Iron Age. Was there actually a class that you studied for this kind of project for the story? There's an archaeological practice called experimental archaeology, which is never about it's not reenactment and it's never about some kind of fantasy time travel. It's an idea that fascinates me that you can learn about prehistoric ways of living by making the kinds of things that those people would have made using the kinds of technologies they would have used. So it's a very practical form of scholarship. And I really like that. I like the idea that by making moving your hands in the way that people would have moved them and having the feelings on your skin that people would have had you can understand more about their lives than you will just by studying what's left I think that would be so fascinating to actually do one of those classes but yeah but at the same time I feel like since I come from a family where my grandfather took me out in the woods and taught me about plants and roots and animals and tracking and like on a very base like kid level but still that was very much part of my education and being aware that it would might be a little bit different for me compared to someone who might have come from a major city yes absolutely and I grew up sort of with both I mean I lived in urban Manchester so in a it was pretty poor then a a post-industrial northern city but my grandparents lived in rural Yorkshire and my grandfather, who he's definitely not the basis of Bill. He was a, a lovely, gentle, kind man. Uh, but he'd left school at 12 and had such severe malnutrition as a child that he was short and his bones were fragile. He'd grown up barefoot and poor in Leeds in the 1920s. And he really knew and loved the landscapes that he'd grown up with. And my parents are very into hiking and mountain walking. So I grew up doing that and I've gone on doing it with my own kids. So I kind of had both growing up and maybe they've both found some form in this novel. Something beautiful about connecting with the land in that way. And that goes back to your how you start with place and how mm-hmm. just even that practice of going out and just being aware of the land really makes you appreciate it more for what it is as opposed to just... People will say that is empty land, but it's not. It's full of full yeah. of life. Yes. And it teaches you to recognize your own physicality and your own mortality as well. When you understand yourself as a creature of and on land in the same way as other creatures of and on land, you have a very different idea of bodies and minds and being in the world. 
that gives me hope for the future Sully's of the world that maybe in the future we'll be able to see more women who are both educated but also close to the land and that it's not this idea that you have to be one or the other, that there is room for people who are both. Yes, that would be nice. So this book also touches a bit on violence against women. And I do believe this is something that we seem more aware of. It's always been there, but it's something that we've been more aware of in recent times. Uh, Did that, what's happening now, influence the writing of your novel? Or is that something that just came naturally to the story? I think it was always going to be part of the story. And Me Too happened certainly after I'd written several drafts and possibly after it had gone for copy editing and proofs, I can't quite remember. So it wasn't a direct response to the Me Too movement. I'd always avoided writing violence against women before. In one of my earlier books, there is some, but it happens very definitely off stage. This time I needed to address it more directly, but it was very important to me to do that in a way that didn't allow any space for voyeurism or titillation. You don't get to stand back, you don't get to see, you don't get to hear. You never see it from from the aggressor's point of view. You're absolutely in the victim's head and not in her body. There's no There's no real account of how it feels. You're just in her thoughts and in her mind. And it was very important to me to do it that way, because I think so many accounts of violence against women in fiction end up being voyeuristic and sensational. I'm I'm very uncomfortable, for example, with a lot of crime writing because of that. So I wanted to find a way of doing it that doesn't afford the reader the luxury of listening or watching. And it, I think being in her head, it makes it more real because it's like you're kind of seeing or reading what her thought might might be going going through something like that yes good that was how I wanted it to be one of the things that I also found fascinating was how the other women responded to the violence happening to another woman and they respond in different ways some of them want to get one of the women to stand up for herself and the other one more kind of perpetuates, writes it off as, oh, that's just who he is. And there's so many different portrayals of that. Yes. Partly because Alison, the one who thinks that it's the victim's fault, is also a victim. And in some ways it's probably more comfortable to believe that it's your fault or her fault than to believe that the woman in that situation has no power because it's a bit like blaming victims of crime or people who are poor. If you believe that it's because of some moral failing or act of complicity on their part, then it won't happen to you because you're stronger than that or better than that or cleverer than that or whatever it is. Once you accept that it's not the victim's fault, the victim did nothing to invite it, then you have to accept that it can happen to anybody. And that's quite a scary position to occupy. And in some ways, Molly's ability to call it out comes from her own class privilege. And she's she's right. It probably won't happen to her. But it won't happen to her because it hasn't happened to her. And I mean, of course, domestic violence happens across all classes. But it's unimaginable to Molly that she would ever be a victim. And therefore, she can almost afford to 
see what's wrong. There's there's so much to think about with this book, and I hope our all of our listeners will go and read it. But before I let you go, I always like to ask the authors that we have on the show um, about recommendations of other women authors. And since we're talking about a book set in Northern England, and that is also where you are from, are there any Northern English writers that you would like to draw attention to in particular? Mm. Well, I mean, she's already done very well and probably doesn't need my recommendation, but Fiona Mosley's Elmet, uh, which was shortlisted for the Booker a couple of years ago, her first novel, um, is really excellent. And that's set in Yorkshire, quite near where mine is set, and in some ways exploring some similar themes. I mean, Jeanette Winterson is originally from the Norse, of course, though long resident in London. It seems we tend to leave. Well, if we go back a bit further, there's Winifred Holtby, who's late 20th century, um, a very good and very definitely in that tradition of female Northern writers. And then, of course, we can go all the way back to the Bontes because that's where they come from. It always brings me joy that there are these three women up in Northern England, just little geniuses, and everyone's like, where'd you come from? Yes. <laughs> and you're like, uh, not not London. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I imagine it must be even more joyful actually being from there and not admiring them from across the pond um, like I do. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's good. I mean, I grew up near enough to Howarth that I used to go fairly often and walk over the moors to Top Withens, which was the origin of Wuthering oh, Heights. That is the dream. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they were pretty difficult, those women. I can imagine. There's a lovely account of Charlotte Bronte at a party that her publisher gave for her in London. And she came in and sat down on a chair at the side of the room and stayed there. And it was a party that was meant to celebrate her achievement and to be to introduce her to all sorts of London literary people. And she just sat there with her hands folded in a black dress. And after a while, somebody got up confidence and said, um, you are very quiet, Miss Bronte. And she said, sir, it is my habit when I have nothing to say. And you can just imagine the poor bloke kind of <laughs> Creeping off with his hands behind his back. Oh, they're such an interesting family. <laughs> you should go to Howard sometime. They've got Charlotte Bronte's dresses and you know her pens. That that is the dream. If I ever get over to England, I have family in Ireland. I need to go visit them. Mm. Hop across the channel, yeah, and go visit all of the yeah. historic things. Virginia Woolf is my favorite writer, and I yeah. want to go to where she used to vacation, Sussex. Yeah. Because, you know, The Lighthouse was an epic book for me. And so I just need to go and do a literary historical tour. You should do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so before I let you go, um, what are you working on now? And do you have plans to have any more of your books come over to the United States? Well, I'd be delighted. Um, the next book is called Summer Water and it's coming out in September in the UK and I think a few weeks later in the U.S., that sounds wonderful. I have been buying your books from the UK through Book Depository for a few years now, and I'm so excited that they'll finally uh, more of them are coming across uh, to us. Thank you. So uh, congratulations on that, and congratulations on the paperback of Ghost Wall. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for chatting with me. It's been wonderful. Great pleasure. I'd like to thank Sarah Moss for talking to me about her novel Ghost Wall, which is out now in paperback from Picador. You can find more about Sarah on her website, sarahmoss.org. And of course, all of her information will be linked in the show notes. 
I'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. If you're interested in becoming one of our patrons, getting exclusive Patreon podcast and newsletter, we have a book club, we have so many things. If you'd like to join our patrons, you can find a link per usual in our show notes. You can also find us, Reading Women, at readingwomenpodcast.com and on social media at The Reading Women. And thank you so much for listening.